Welcome to the Betterism Podcast, a learning community seeking out life's unusual lessons from its unlikely places. I'm your host, Glenn Binger, author, teacher, and coach, and I'm here to help spark some collective growth. I hope you'll stick around and teach us a thing or two, but first, a few words from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Four Sigmatic. Four Sigmatic is a magical fungi supplement company. No, we're not talking magic mushrooms. We're talking natural organic fungi. Lion's mane, chaga, turkey tail, reshi, uh, cordyceps, you name it. They have all different kinds of products available on their website. Um, blends that will help you think, uh, blends that will help you defend and build up your immune system, um, adaptogens that will help you chill out and relieve some of the stress of day-to-day life, especially this day and age. Um, Four Sigmatic has a lot of educational content on their website as well. If you click on their learn tab up top, they actually have something called the Mushroom Academy, which is very helpful. Uh, It's where I learned about the different fungi, mushrooms, and what they do specifically. Personally, I'm a big fan of their Think Blend or their Think Coffee Grinds with Lion's Mane and Chaga. Really kind of sets my brain on fire when I'm sitting down to write or record or put something together for a project I'm working on. Um, They have all kinds of products from proteins to coffee blends to uh, extracts. Um, Check them out at foursigmatic.com. That's four spelled out, F O U R. S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com. If you use the promo code BETTERISM at checkout, you can save 10% off your order. That's foursigmatic.com. This episode is brought to you by a brand new podcast called The Discontents, The Disappearance of a Young Radical. It's actually an audiobook by indie author James Wallace Birch. It's a narrative-style podcast, and it's an adaptation of his cult classic novel split into podcast episodes. I believe there's eight in total. It's available for free on anchor.fm slash Birch or wherever you get your podcasts. The novel itself, of the same name, has a four-star rating on Goodreads. It's the first book in the gripping mystery of the 2011 disappearance of Emery Walden, notorious graffiti artist. Um, it is a highly captivating listen I recommend you check it out as soon as you can. Enjoy. All right. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Bearism Podcast, uh, episode 16, I believe. Can't believe it's been 16 episodes. Today's guest, we have author James Wallace Birch. James, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Glenn. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Uh, I figured we got a lot of stuff to kind of talk about. I, I'm kind of biased because I always I prefer having authors on here even though I think learning isn't you know pertaining just to authors and writers and poets but I'm a little biased because I kind of identify in that same realm but um, I figured we would kind of start off with your latest book if you find Emery Walden Um, it was a edge of your seat thriller I couldn't put it down man I was so stoked on that awesome (laughs) Uh, that is great yeah man for sure do you want to talk a little bit about where that kind of stems from i I mean i know it's kind of a sequel to your first book but where did the idea for book two kind of come from it kind of grow and fruition into what it is 
Okay. All right. And if I go on and on, just like interrupt me and say, Hey, uh, <laughs> that was a long story. Okay. So, cause there's a lot <laughs> no that I could, a lot that I could unpack. Okay. So uh, okay, I know okay. we'll, we'll talk later about the first book, but I guess to set the tone for uh, the listener, uh, the first book is um, from the point of view of the character Emery Walden, which is obviously in the title of the second book. So in the, the first book is the memoir of the character Emery Walden. So to your question of where did the second book come from, um, the second book kind of came out of the scene that I had in my mind of, um, now this is going to be a little confusing. The second book is based off of a fictional character that uses my name. Uh, because I was my character. Okay, yeah. So it's kind of confusing. That's so I'm like, oh, how do I start this? So the fictional character, you know, based off of me, is the main character in the second book. So Emery is the main character in the first, and the second book is the fictional character looking for the traces of Emery from the first book. So it's a metafiction. So it's a it's a fictional book about a fictional book, um, and so. Yeah. I had this scene in my mind of James, you know, character, or just a person sitting on the kitchen counter, just sort of lost in their life um, and kind of trying to figure out like where they're going and what they're doing. And it just kept coming back in of like this scene. So I was like, okay, I have to get this scene down on paper. And then as I was writing it, it like the story just started going. And I started sort of creating from there and realizing that the story of the character Emery Walden, um, which was purposefully, I don't want to like spoil the first novel, but the point is, is yeah. I didn't feel that the story was complete. And I thought there's a whole world here that hasn't been explored. And sort of how do we, this character Emery. So it kind of started from a couple different seeds. It was that scene in my mind. And then it was trying to kind of like, I didn't want to write a whole new book with all new characters and all new everything. Mm -hmm. I wanted to try to do sort of like what people like Brett Easton Ellis do, where it's sort of like there this, there's this whole world out there and sort of this character, you know, may not be in this other book, but they're all tied. Like all these people kind of know each other or know about each other in some way. So yeah. that was kind of the impetus of it. And I, I think I was inspired by kind of reading the book nine stories from um, from J.D. Salinger. Where he's got kind of like these mm, different, yeah. you know, kind of like characters. and But they're all somehow, you know, living in this other world. I don't know if right. I. So that's kind of where it started. That's a cool idea, too. Like, I know. So in, I, I kind of and I'm, I'm not trying to tout myself or my own work here, but I kind of play in the same realm, right? Where like, I have my own, in, in my fiction, I have my own kind of universe going where characters exist in this universe. And even though the stories themselves might not be directly connected the way that Discontents and Emery Walden are, right? Um, I still have characters who exist in this universe who like are aware and like know each other even though their stories might not match up, you know what I mean? Right. And, you know, it's, it's like you said, it's, it's very um, meta, right? So, like, I this, when I was reading Emery, uh, if you find Emery Walden, the 
first thing that came into my my mind as soon as you yourself were like the character, I immediately went back to Vonnegut. I was like, this is like pure Kurt Vonnegut. Like I I can see the same kind of thing going on there. Um, and mm-hmm. I've I've read books in the past that you know try to do this this style of of uh, expanding a universe and using metafiction, and it's it's a very tough edge to walk. Right. Like you can you can make it the way you did and have it like, you know, totally kick ass or on the flip side, like if you don't pull the right strings at the right time, like it could totally fall. Very difficult to kind of manage that, especially when you have, you know, characters upon characters upon characters. I mean, like for me in my own fictional universe, I I had to create a document in my Google Drive with like which mm-hmm. characters are in which book or in which story, like where do they appear? Yeah. What happens? Because it became, you know, I, I've been doing this for going on 15 years, developing wow. this universe, right? So, like, for me, it became such a task to kind of keep track of, like, who's in what and how, like, at what point and who's pregnant and, you know, who got married yeah. and who died, and right? So, right. how did you, when you're developing this the sequel, how did you kind of keep track of that? How did you kind of manage, like the evolution of your characters in the story as they kind of progressed that's a great uh that's a great question um so originally the scope of the book bring in a few other characters that are from the first book and i actually um as the story developed i actually wanted to try to keep enough think of it like i guess like a venn diagram it's like i wanted there to be enough overlap that somebody could read either book independently but if they read one they would want to read the other i didn't want it to have so much overlap that um people you know like yourself like you read the second book you don't need to read the first book to i hope to get the second book and to enjoy it as a standalone but you know, it kind of gives you an opportunity to go back and explore the world further to go back and read the first book or, you know, in the opposite order. So what I was trying to manage that there was a few characters that are literally mentioned in, I think, one sentence um, where without, again, trying to ruin the plot or give too much away, (laughs) essentially they say we could go talk to these people, but it would be a waste of time. I mean, kind of paraphrasing, but that's kind of, one of the the ideas because I started to realize this web is is going to become so tangled if I do that that it may defeat what I'm trying to accomplish of having them stand apart. So that was kind of one thing in which I guess I would say I, I cheated in a sense that I didn't let there be too much overlap. Right. There's only interaction between a few characters from uh, like in between them if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. I was able to kind of keep them at an arm's length. And in doing that, I feel that um, the other sort of trick was how much do you believe what you heard from the other book? If that makes sense. I tried to yeah. call into question the veracity of the first book in a few different ways to point to the reader, hey, maybe there are some things missing or inconsistent here in the first book. So who do you trust? You know, sort of whose story do you, do you trust Emery's story? Do you trust a character, Ella Alice 
you know, who's in both stories? Who do you trust mm -hmm. interpretation of, of the events? And so in that way, um, because I knew, and this sounds like something that you've experienced, even if you keep documents and, you know, I was rereading my own book as I was writing the, the other one, right, to yeah. kind of like make sure I wasn't missing things. But even with as much care as you can possibly do, there is that, that opportunity for a mistake or, you know, you, you interpret something one way and then you look at it in a bigger context and you might see it in a different way. So I think those are a couple of tools that I tried to use to kind of, you know, separate those two. And then the last thing I would say, the one character that is very strongly in both books, which is um, Ella Alice, has changed significantly between the two books. And so mm. there's the why has this, you know, why has this person changed in this it's seven or eight year, you know, kind of time period. And then what are the things that happened in that character's life that might have caused that, you know, caused that change and sort of the, sure. say sort of the trauma of that. So those are the three like, kind of tools I tried to use. Yeah. And or, I, you know, I think you did a really good job. Number one in making it. So like feel stupid for not having read the first book, you know what I mean? Like, like the second book made so much sense even without it. And in that book, like you even I one of the things I picked up on you doing was referencing passages from the first book. Right. Mm -hmm. So you have characters who are driving that second book, but they keep going back to reference to find clues from the first book. Right. Mm -hmm. And you did it in such a way where I like I didn't feel like I I mean, I want to don't take this the wrong way. I didn't feel like I needed to read the first book in order for that to make sense. But like you said what I found is like the further I got in the second book, the more that you referenced it, the more that made me want to go back and, you know, read the first book to kind of see, like you said, like how the characters got to this point. Right. So um, the whole Ella Alice thing, that's, that's a little bit of a spoiler listeners heads up about the, yeah. the, the massive change, <laughs> not too crazy, but it is a little bit, but at the same time, like you did it in a way without making the reader feel dumb. You know what I mean? And I think that's it's very challenging to do when someone partakes on that particular type of fiction. Right. Um, and mm -hmm. I think that's a lot. Of, it's a lot of that's why a lot of writers who write fiction tend to shy away from creating these massive universes because it it becomes so complex. Um, yeah. Like you said, even though you might have characters and, you know, story points that cross over making it so it doesn't depend on one another is very challenging to do. And that's why you see like, you know, all these major publishers come out with like trilogies for that reason is because it's easier to just announce it as a book one, book two, book three, rather than saying like, or, or trying to write, you know, here's a book one, but it's actually a prequel to book four, which is actually a sequel to book. Three. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, yeah. it becomes this like giant web and it's very tough. I mean, like with my own work, again, I had to start my own, uh, like document of like what happened like I, it's crazy how I map it out like it's like an outline and I have like a time period for each book and like the major events mm. but I still find even though I have it that detailed um, and again I've been doing this for you know quite a few years now um, 
even though it's that detailed, I still find myself having to go back and like reread some of my old stuff to make sure that, you know, the line that I'm writing in this new book isn't incorrect. Right. And it could be something stupid, like just referencing one character. Right. But I think the way that you combated that difficulty or that obstacle by having a major change in a character that is essentially, essentially unexplained. Right. Mm -hmm. You, you did a very nice job there in trying to provide the reader a little incentive to go back to read the other book without feeling like they have to. Right. And it was one of those things, like for me as, as a reader, it, that hooked me. That hooked me into not only that book that I was reading, but also now I want to go read the second. But right. at the same time, to repeat myself, <laughs> I, I don't feel dumb because I didn't read it. You know what I mean? I feel like that's very tough to do this day and age, especially when you're writing fiction. Thank you. Dude, that gives me great joy for you to like for, to hear that because that's what I was trying to accomplish. I, you know, the the two books are very different stories about very different people Mm -hmm. and the the like the message you know the intended message uh, of each is very different and i wrote them at different stages of my life um when i was going through different um you know just different sets of circumstances and i feel that the you know, the two stories are so different that I didn't want it to be, you know, here's the trilogy, like here's the sequel, because there are parts of the character, again, I'm trying not to spoil anything, but of the character Emery Walden isn't a, it's not the, somebody that you can, it's not somebody you want to be best friends with, you know, if that's (laughs) maybe the easiest way to put it, it's not the the best human being in in the world. And that's intense. But I think in the world we live in today, sometimes people, um, you know, may read into, you know, a writer a little bit too much and sort of say, oh, this is, you know, this is uh, your world or whatever. And, um, and I didn't want people to think, you know, tie me too closely to the Emery Walden character because the Emery Walden character is so mm-hmm. different of the person that I am. And so I wanted to kind of step back from the character that I'd created there and sort of say, what's a character that's more, I don't say more like me, but, you know, that's, that's had a similar, more similar life experience. I mean, broadly speaking, to sure. my own. Um, whereas Emery Walden character is a bit more of a, um, what's the word? A little more brash than I, I that I am as a, as a person, and a little bit more um, criminal in his behavior, if that makes sense. So, so that's a good way to describe it. So it's kind of how do how do you have these two characters? So again, without trying to spoil, um, the the first book starts off with a letter from uh, you know the fictional character based on my name. And Mm -hmm. that sort of ties them both together. So to go create that separate world, it's sort of like, what's the story of the guy who plays this very minor role in the first book? And sort of how he's affected by all of this and how he got sort of swept up into this whole um, series of events. 
And so I thought, yeah, let's tell the story from this other character that I've, you know, for the whole story to work, have used, you know, my name on. And so I know this like, sounds like I'm using a lot of pronouns and you know, it's probably <laughs> kind of vague the way I'm explaining it, but um, hopefully it kind right. of makes sense. It's like, how do we tell this other person's story and tell a very different story? And hopefully, you know, a story that that's, you know, paced well and it gets people who are kind of more at my age, you know, now like that they can relate to, whereas the other story is uh, seven or eight years ago. Yeah. Well, I mean, so I want to touch base on a couple of things that you mentioned. I mean, first of okay. all, I don't, um, I noticed that you used first person in, um, if you find, right. Yeah. Did you use first person in discontents as well? Yes. Okay. So that's a t- always a tough call because when you write in first person, right? Like as a, as an author, you're putting you're placing your mindset in this fictional character, right? It's very difficult to separate y- your own thinking and your own life from this character, right? So like naturally, you're gonna have influences from your personal life into your character's personal life. Right? Like I find that right. whenever I write in first person, that's that's the most difficult problem that I have is trying to separate myself from this character right which is i mean if you're going for like a hundred percent you know disintegration it's almost impossible because you're always going to have a little bit of influence in there when you're writing person on the flip side of that you also have your reader right so when your reader is reading something in first person uh, it's probably subconscious but like the first thing they do is they their mind goes to the author right now the author's writing this even though their character's name is blah 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 right right they're still reading it as as a first person so like in their mind in their subconscious it's being absorbed as memoir even though it's clearly labeled fiction right so you have a reader with a diverse perspective on life they have their own life experiences and they're trying to read something that you wrote that is also your own diverse life experiences right but at the same time, that label of fiction is trying to create a separation from what is personal, real life experience. Right. But it's tough. So have to, you know, tie in some sort of relatability to make empathy and, and, and want your reader to kind of attach themselves to certain characters or hate certain characters. Right. Right. Um, and right. That's, that's tough to do when you're like choosing which characters perspectives to write in, right? For me, writing in first person, that's always been the hardest thing to do because like it's it's very difficult to switch gears. I mean, even from book to book, right? Like writing an entire book in one person's perspective and then using that same character in another book, but then writing from somebody else's perspective, it's tough because you have to like separate your mind from their mind, their fictional right. mind, so to speak, right? But then also try to create and, and develop this new character and kind of, you know, build empathy for them or hatred for them, you know, whatever you're trying to do with that specific character. Right. So point of this and what I'm trying to kind of uh, allude to a little bit here is what made you choose to write in first person as opposed to where that personal life experience attachment isn't quite as in your face oh tough tough uh tough question i think that the first book i 
wrote it in first person because I thought it provided a greater intimacy with the thoughts and feelings and the, mm-hmm. um, the challenging which felt separated from society. So I felt that to write it in a third person would sort of say, here's this person over here having this experience. Let's all observe them. Whereas to sort of say, I am this person, this is what I think, you know, screw you if you don't agree with me, is a lot right. more, um, I won't say intimate, but, but yeah, sort of intimate and sort of kind of in your face in a sense. And I felt yeah. that that was kind of necessary to try to build empathy with Emery because I think he's a person that it is difficult on some level to build empathy for. And I also think that he is a person that all of us know somebody like that in some way. Maybe they don't share Emery's particular uh, political ideology or way of handling things and, and stuff. But I think on some level, we know people who are, you know, strong willed and their actions are causing again trying to be vague enough so i don't spoil anything are causing problems in their life that um then have you know affect other people and their sort of myopia uh causes them to find circumstances that hopefully they can then get a wider perspective of and see the world and say oh okay i've been living like from my vantage this entire time And maybe there's a whole host of things that are happening outside of me that I haven't seen. So I think it was Mm -hmm. from that point of view. For the second book, uh, because the character was James Wallace Birch, the fictional character, and I was writing it, it it had to be in first person. You know, sort of had to be, this is my, now I helped you hear this other person's story. This is mine. Um, And I know that it's, again, because it's kind of a metafiction there might be a lot of layers, but so the idea, the question um, listeners might be asking is, well, how do you write two books from the point of view, a first person point of view? So the first book, even though it's, it's, is published by James Wallace Birch, you know, sort of in this world, um, it's written by Emery Walden. And then James Wallace Birch gets his hands on the manuscript, which I, and we'll go into kind of details so people can read and enjoy that part of it. Yep. And then yeah, yeah. publishes it on his behalf. And now the second book is a James Wallace Birch, sort of his story of events. And it's, it takes place like after the book had been published in this, in your fictional universe. Yes. Yeah, so it takes place seven to eight years, you know, as have, have passed mm-hmm. in this time period. Yeah. And you can kind of tell too, you know, again, I haven't read the first book, but you could tell kind of where those life experiences kind of come in because the character that you use as like the fictional character, James Wallace Birch is much more, seems much more adult versus what I assume and what I interpret Emery to be as right. So like, even though they have different lifestyles, like James is a little more reluctant to kind of go on this adventure. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas Emery kind of seems like the character who wouldn't be reluctant to do that. I mean, the whole point of 
you know, and the whole point of the second book is you're searching for Henry and right. some things that he, were left behind. Um, right. And of course, there's new characters introduced and things like that, right? Um, right. But I think the most fascinating thing for me, and again, I haven't read the first book, so I can't really see the full evolution of character, but the most fascinating thing for me was how you certain characters that were obviously in the first book and how you kind of developed, you know, the character James's perspective towards that person, but also kind of at the same time, like how that character is perceived generally within the universe. For example, in right. I, I have a character, Kevin, from one of the first books that I wrote, who I was trying to kind of create uh, like this this millennial existential kind of character who was like unsure of like what it meant to be an adult in America. Right. And that that book I wrote, I don't know, I was right out of college and I was frustrated for not being able to get a job right away like everyone promised was going to happen it was the right. 2008 you know right at the 2008 uh, economic collapse and stuff so like you know i was very jaded but i was trying to create this character and by the way i wrote that book in first person who um what had a similar mindset of the world and even though it wasn't really like me it had elements of me in there right but that character right. Um, actually is going that I'm working on now head games um, and I, oh. what I tried to do is I tried to like uh, kind of evolve that character to a point where you know yeah he still has the same group of friends and stuff but he's he is so much more jaded and I tried to paint this picture for the readers to kind of make it like you hate this character you know what I mean um, right and I did kind of the same thing you did. Whereas like I, I wrote that first book in first person, I'm writing this book in first person and it's two different perspectives. So I'm writing from two different, you know, characters point of views. Um, right. And the, the deeper I got into writing this new novel, the more I kind of, you know, I'm editing, uh, I think it's the second, second draft I'm editing right now. Um, the deeper I get into it, the more I'm kicking myself for like not writing in third person because you know, third person omniscient, you, you can kind of go back and kind of like just, you know, show the reader things more abruptly without diving into your character's mindset. Right. Right. So right. I guess I guess what I'm trying to ask you is what do you have? Number one, do you have a preference over writing in first person or third person? And number two, if you were to go back and change one of the one of your two books into third person which one would you make it and why oh okay uh so to the first question i would say that i have had a tendency to write in first person i've struggled with third person because there is a distance there although mm -hmm. there are a lot yep. of benefits um you know and i i think one of those is being able to sort of describe people's experiences like as you said like all knowing you know so we can look down and say this is this person and one of the weaknesses i think in some of my first person writing is i have there's a couple cases that i've gone and done that and sort of described even though it's first person saying here's here's this other person 
but sort of describe mm-hmm. their thoughts when I've broken a rule there. So, to my next problem, or not problem, but what's going to be a problem is if there's a third book, where is it written? You know, from whose point of view is this written? Um, right. So if someone reads the, the two books that I have, what then happens? So it would almost have to be in third person unless I come up with some other kind of solution. But right now I'm thinking of pulling back and then trying to figure out how, you know, what's the story of trying to write several people's stories as opposed to the narrow. If I had to redo one of them, I think, and I don't think this, I don't call it a series because we talked about you don't have to read one to the other but you know just say right. the wouldn't work as well if i did either one of them in third person but i think that i would write emory in third person because i think that he's just a more difficult to relate to and sure. some of the feedback i got about the first novel you know some of the reviews and things people would would point that out that this isn't a person who i particularly like and you know as a writer and i'm sure the listeners know if people don't like and relate to and want to root for the character it can be a challenge for them to get invested in them which isn't mm-hmm. to say i don't think you know i think emory is a person underneath there is a lot to potentially root for you're just finding a person at a particular point in their life but i think becoming aware of that really influenced how i tried to write the second novel so i think if i i would say it's almost i don't want to say a regret but it's almost like if i could go back and do it differently i might separate out the character a little bit more because as you said people do sort of you and say well how much of this you know, how much of this is you versus how much of this is your observations of, of other people yeah. and, and the world yeah. around you and so forth. So I think that's what I would do. Yeah. The, the more a reader knows the author, the easier it is to kind of make those connections, right? Like we've all read books by authors we don't know. And I feel like it's a lot harder to make those, you know, those real life connections when you're reading in that lens. But like, right. Like I, I, you know, I know, I know you, I don't want to say super personally, but like, I, I feel like I, we've connected this. I think it was actually from loud coffee press. We connected over. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Shout out Annie and and Fred. Uh, (laughs) By the way, go listen, listeners, go listen to that episode. I want to say a couple episodes back. Anyway, uh, when, you know, we, we had connected and we kind of went back and forth kind of talking about little things. So I feel like I, I had an, an idea of who you were prior to actually reading your book. So like I was right. able to kind of, you know, especially cause you're using your own name. Like I kind of had, you know, right. an idea of, of who you were and I could kind of see where certain things kind of tied in. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's one of the cons of using first person is, is, you know, the, the reader is subconsciously kind of connecting that even though it's fiction, they're still kind of treating it in their brain as like, you know, memoir to to an extent right um, which you know writing in third person that would be a pro because then you're able to disconnect from the actual character 
right? And I think this is a reason why some people prefer movies over books. Um, number one, it's less uh, visual stimuli. So you're not trying to interpret symbols, you know, words on a page and stuff. But at the same time, like your brain doesn't have to work as hard because you one character from like a the perspective of a fly on the wall, right? So when you're right. writing in third person, you know, you see books all the time that have like every chapter is a different perspective. Or right. you'll have, you know, uh, you'll have even third person um, limited when the character is just the, the narrator's following one character. Even when you're using that style of third person, um, it's easier for the reader to disconnect from that character to make some sort of judgment or, you know, likability, right? And that's not to say like sometimes, of course, you want to create a character who is hated because that, that drives plot just as much as a character who's loved. Right. right. You, you need you need a villain just as much as you need a hero. Um, but I think there is definitely, especially for younger writers, this is a big piece of advice. I, I really think you need to think about what it is you want your readers to take away from the character. Right. Right. Uh, kind of really ultimately come back to your decision on whether or not to use first person or third person. Um Right, that kind of right. that can it'll it'll subconsciously affect your readers um even if they're not able to express that it's just how it's how our brains as humans work we can't turn that off it's just it's there you know what i mean so absolutely yeah i don't know i i think i personally i'm more inept to write in first person but i find it especially with if i'm going for something crazy like sci-fi or something like i find it easier to write in third person to that extent because mm. then you can kind of mm -hmm. you can dive into things that you know you wouldn't like when you're writing in first person you're not going to know what another character is thinking right right and right. you know if you tie that again to use the the movie analogy like you can't really think and see what other people are, are thinking but based on their actions in the movie you can kind of tell right based right. on their emotions and things like that and the same goes for you know when you're writing or reading a book um, you can kind of, you know, the old, the old adage show, don't tell like that. It's a lot easier right. to show things in third person than it is in first person. Cause in first person, if you do it too much, it feels like the narrator the whole time, right. Which you did not do. Right. I think that's very <laughs> difficult to master that task, but you did a really good job of kind of maintaining that balance. But I, you Thank know, you. I, I've absolutely, I've definitely read aspiring authors, first, second books who, struggle with that right and it's one of those things it's like you, the only way to combat that is to practice you just have to read the classics written in whatever point of view and kind of you know take note of the tricks and tips and things they're doing to kind of change that um yeah since you brought absolutely. it up if you're going to go with book three um and don't feel like you need to spoil anything but do you have a a specific character in mind that you would be kind of following around no not a specific character the original idea well i guess the answer is yes but i don't think that it, i don't know that it would work the original idea is going back to sort of high school days of mm, like a james right emory and, and sort of a host of friends and trying to write more of a coming of age hopefully you know, humor and I struggle. I think I do okay with wit, but like, you know, humor, humor, like a funny book. I don't know that I am the right person to pull that off, but 
in my dream, this would be sort of a coming of age, funny sort of tale uh, before everything kind of became contorted and, and twisted in their lives. That's right. the, the broad brush idea, but I don't know. And then part of me does say, okay, put this to rest and come up with something totally different. And I think that for me, I'm trying to learn through the feedback that I get, you know, from, from readers about what they like and what they mm. don't like and say, okay, how do I make a, a story better? So to give you a simple example, the, I know I give the example that some of the feedback I got about Emery was that he was not a likable person, which was not my, you know, necessarily the goal to make him likable, but it made me realize, okay, that's a, that's, maybe if that's a turnoff for some readers, then I need to be aware of that. I think the other sure example would be that the first book uh, I was a big fan of movies like fight club and seven and those types of movies yep. and stories when I was growing up. And I felt that a lot of that was about creating a perception and then turning the, you know, sort of like turning the knob and changing the, per the perspective for people. So in mm -hmm. creating the first story, everything kind of builds and builds and builds and you don't necessarily notice that like the the sort of the, the fire on the stove is going higher and higher and higher until it sort of starts to you get to the top of the roller coaster maybe to use an analogy right. i realized that sort of spread out in the second book you know sort of spread out some of that action and some of those moments so that um it's sort of like a song you're going through and I don't, I'm not a mus musician, so I don't know the terms, but like you're going through the different parts and then you get to the, let's say the chorus and then people enjoy that. And then it kind of goes back the other part. Like as much and goes kind of back to the chorus. I try to kind of yeah. think in that way is how do I kind of move it along and have something and then, you know, kind of slow it down and move it along and have this and different emotions. So that was oh, a little yeah, bit of a tangent, sure. but I think it's sort of like, how do how do we learn from each work and the feedback and then think of what that third book would be, you know, it's going to have to take in the lessons learned from the feedback from the other two and then start to map that out. Right. Oh, right. So this is, this is a great transition piece because I kind of want to talk about it since you mentioned it earlier too, but um, reader feedback. I think it's, sure. it, it's, underappreciated in a lot of times um other times it's unwarranted <laughs> you know there's definitely two edges of that sword you know we'll we'll leave that as, right. as there's always a yin and a yang but right um from my own personal experience um i have found when i when i uh i don't want to say listen to because it's probably the wrong word but when i receive some sort of feedback i try to use it in a realm that will work and that's not to say it always works because sometimes it does. But I found too, you know, if there's something that happens in a story and somebody approaches me to ask about like, well, what's the backstory of this thing that happened? A lot of times that will ask, that'll like force me to ask myself the same question and will kind of spawn like this side story. Almost like, you know, Star Wars, right? Disney bought them. They had the right. whole like, the, the main plot of Star Wars is like the rise and fall of the empire, right? 
but right. like you also have the the tie-in of the skywalker family bloodline kind of thing but then right. they started you know disney started to like you know they wanted to make their money as disney always does and they started doing these like side stories right with like rogue one and han solo and now you have like mandalorian and you have uh, wasn't the one that was just announced like the uh, the bad guys or bad ones or something like that you know start basically what i'm saying is like started taking these like little sub pieces that like people had questions about and they started making like these side stories to like answer these questions mm. not just for the fanatics but just to kind of like provide a little bit of uh like backstory to something that like maybe a hardcore fan boy or fangirl or whoever would be, you know, inquiring about. Mm. But Disney is obviously on another level than, you know, we are, right? Like Disney's a, a right. mega conglomerate, right? Like there's a big right, difference right. between having all of that funding and listening to your viewership feedback and, you know, the indie author or even, you know, the published author who has an agent and stuff taking the mm -hmm. traditional route. There's a big difference between accepting feedback on that level and Disney's level. So right. how do you tend to kind of sort out the good feedback from the bad feedback? Is Do you have, do you have like a system that you use to kind of like absorb that and kind of use it to work? Um, is there any kind of like immediate signals where you just like, all right, this guy, like I'm going to write off this feedback because it doesn't make any sense or you know, maybe there's a whole other category of, all right, this, I never thought of it this way. I'm going to save this feedback for next future work, next book, whatever it is. Do you have some sort of system to kind of like, I guess, manage, I guess what I'm asking is, do you have a system to manage that feedback and how you use it? I wish that I did. Um, this is a really great question. I think it comes to some of the things, and I know that you post about like, uh, trying to, in some of the conversations we had over um, Instagram, it, it's sort of, you know, how do you grow without criticism or without feedback? You know, mm -hmm. people saying this works and this doesn't. Um, so I think part of it is I, I've i grown up as a person who I think took everything personally, particularly as I was younger, as I'm sure that a lot of, you know, creatives and, and writers and things do. And I've sure. tried to take that distance from it it i can't say that i've accomplished that 100 but i have tried to first by saying this is somebody's experience opinion perspective um you know this isn't necessarily me you know or my work it's it's their life and how they're seeing it so i think that's the first healthy lesson that i have learned about putting anything out there i've always been a person there are dozens of projects that I have never finished because of, you know, sort of that, well, what if this sucks or what if nobody likes it? And so I think it's a struggle, an ongoing struggle, but as I've put things out there, um, some of the, let's say criticism or some of the, you know, feedback that wasn't as constructive, I had to also think about who is the audience for this work and is this person mm -hmm. the audience that I'm trying to reach? And if they are the sure. audience I'm trying to reach and it didn't work, okay, why, why didn't it work? How can I learn from it? If they aren't in that audience and they loved it or they didn't love it, then it's about the fit. You know, was that the right fit for this person? 
I think trying to create the book that everyone's going to love or the movie or song that everyone's going to love is maybe a, a false goal to have. I came across an article hmm. a while ago, uh, let's say a year or so ago, and it was a collection of really critical reviews of American classic literature, you know, like Salinger, Fitzgerald, you know, stuff that's taught in school that everyone right. would sort of just imagine that, oh, everyone's going to love this. And I think one of them was, a, you know, The Great Gatsby and these types of things. And you sort of see what people say, like, this is boring and this was slow. And, you know, who the hell was this Gatsby guy anyways, or whatever they said. <laughs> and starting yeah, to yeah. realize, and I have no uh, perversion in my mind that I am anywhere in the same, you know, universe as somebody like F. Scott Fitzgerald or Salinger. The point is that I, if I can look at these people who are considered masters and they're going to have critiques who am i to to not critique or, or to not to be enjoyed so i think that's part of the distancing so i guess i would say that's the sort of the first step and the second which i sort of mentioned mm -hmm. is how do i decide if this person is in my target audience and then okay what from this you know feedback good or bad can i learn from so i've learned from good feedback and some critique and there's actually you know, some of the, again, I feel like I'm making too many spoilers, but there's actually a sort of saying, you know, something negative about uh, Emery Walden on Goodreads um, because, I'm sorry. I said, no, yeah, you did a good job too. Like, I feel like you. Be, this is why I love the book so much is because you had your characters in that book referencing the the meta-ness of the first book and like it referenced things that like are so relatable like a book review on goodreads or amazon and you had different characters in that second book talking about whether or not they liked the first book you know what right. i mean so right. like to me that's that's such a real factor of any kind of art right like books that's our specialty but like you, you go across any spectrum of art like that that element of criticism is so valuable i mean it, it is the root of progress and that doesn't mean that all feedback and all criticism that you uh witness should be adhered to like i think a big piece of it and people often misunderstand this is like a big piece of it is learning which criticism like you're saying which criticism do you listen to which wh right. what kind of you know feedback is the kind that you want to take into account so right. I think what you're saying is with, you know, first evaluating whether or not this person is the intended audience is a huge step. But then number two, like also trying to evaluate, okay, yes, this person is <laughs> my intended audience, but did they actually understand what it was I was trying to do? Are they giving me feedback beyond just, I like this, I didn't like this, right? Right. Um, how And then sometimes like, sometimes the feedback is just like, on Goodreads, it's like you get all right, ten out of ten. Like, what right. do I do with that? You know what I mean? Like, thanks for thanks for being mm -hmm. nice, but like, did that really help me at all? You know, so it's right. kind of tough to like separate yourself as the creator from the project and take a step back and kind of use those those little kind of you know tick marks to kind of improve the next thing. Yeah, so I would say it's sort of the, like the final piece. Then is kind of own it and not in the, I don't mean that in a sense of that, whatever feedback you have and 
and just accept, you know, you have to accept if someone says this is the best thing or this is the worst thing, but sort of, it's like the ability to kind of laugh at yourself. That's why I put that in there in the book of, of kind of a reference to Goodreads and whether or not they like the book is because it's part of a story. And right. so why not sort of like that into the whole thing and a big theme in, uh, in my writing is centered sort of around how people interpret their world and how they see the world and the differing points of view and like, what is that? And so I think underneath everything that we've talked about, and you kind of asked me about the first person and how do we, you know, kind of navigate between the first person of the different stories and everything. It's sort of like, what is the reality? What is the experience? Where's the line between those? And I think in, in all of the, like when I'm trying to create something, I kind of have a, a motto, which is more or less, you know, none of this happened, but all of it is true. And so even though the stories are made up in experience, this is a truth for them. You know, I, I've known people who've gone through some of the things that are discussed in one or both of the books, or I've seen, you know, I've witnessed events, you know, of things that are happening that people are doing or known people like some of these characters in some way, even even it's even if it's only an ounce of being. Right. So I think as anybody creating something, whether that's music or, or writing or whatever, you have to kind of come to it as like where's the 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 big truth in this about life and about people and about the struggle of, of trying to live you know trying to live life of humanity. Right. Uh, that that I always forget who penned it, but there's that. Um, I'm gonna butcher the quote. It's like all all fiction is rooted in great truth, something right. like that. I mean, right, I, right. I mean that's like like our brains are constantly imagining things, right? And even though we label something as fiction, it had to come from some sort of truth, some sort of reality, right? Like right. I, I always you think you think about something like so so out there like like alien how long has humanity had this vision of entities from another planet to the point now where it's like so embedded in our culture like star wars right like star wars is is set on other planets in another galaxy and that's that concept is normalized to the point where you know, I think I think it was like a month ago, the government, like the government of the United States, like finally acknowledged the existence of UFOs and like people didn't bat an eyelid because everyone right. else was like, oh, well, like no shit. Like we knew this the whole time. Right. But for the fact that, that the government admitted to it and that not making a much of a uh, I guess as much noise as you would as one would think for something that is so, quote unquote, imaginary is kind of the root of where great fiction comes from. And I say fiction loosely. I don't mean just books. I mean, you t fiction can apply to anything, movies, um, songs, um, you know, paintings. Like, those are things that are, quote unquote, fictionalized, even though they have that element of reality. Right. Which is, 
I mean, that's, it's crazy to think about. And if you're a creator of any time, uh, any kind, I'm sorry, the sooner you realize something like that, the more freedom you have in your art to, to build what it is, is sitting in the back of your brain. It's like, I feel right. like so often you creators are hesitant, especially aspiring creators. They're hesitant to, to put forward this idea because they, they are fearful of the criticism and the feedback that's going to come from it. But like you said, right. like even the, even the greats, even the greats had to face that same obstacle. And the sooner you're able to kind of face that fear and realize that that obstacle is there because it's guiding you down a path the universe wants you to take, you know, the more apt you're going to be to, to create more things and try to better yourself and try to keep growing within your realm of creativity, whatever it is, fiction, music, etc. Um, speaking of, y- you I are taking a huge step. I don't know if you released it or not yet, but you are creating a audio version of Discontents um, as a podcast, correct? Uh, correct. Do you want to yes. talk a little bit about that? Maybe kind of plug it a little bit. Where Where did that idea come from and kind of, I guess, what kind of uh, obstacles are you facing in the transition from like written word to spoken word? So, yes, there is a podcast format. You know, in other words, in episodes, you can subscribe uh, anywhere, um, you know, that there are podcasts, Apple, uh, Google, podcasts, Spotify, etc. Um, it's Discontents, The Disappearance of a Young Radical Audiobook. And episode one dropped last Thursday and episode two, I will release Thursday, uh, the 16th of July. Um, so the idea of it was I have this story, um, you know, the discontents was published 2011, something in that space. And I have the story. Uh, I own all the rights to that story, publishing rights. And I love podcasts. I love the whole idea of being able to listen, you know, when you're washing the dishes or or what driving or whatever. And so Mm -hmm. I listen to a lot of audiobooks. I'll even um, get books on Kindle and then I can get the Kindle to read, you know, to me. I know that some, it's like a computer voice, but I still enjoy that. And I thought, with how busy and everything everybody is, you know, and not everybody likes to sit down and read a book. Is there a way to provide this story to people in another format? And the technology is there. Uh, the cost is very low to, to you know, in terms of monetary costs. I mean, time and everything is a whole separate thing, but, you know, to produce. Yeah. And I thought that would be a great skill for me to try to learn to expand beyond the, you know, sort of the, the page, the sort of the printed book or, um, ebook. I thought for a while about trying to write stories like for podcasts um, to write mm-hmm. like an audio drama intended to be recorded as a podcast was the original idea. And then I, I decided to go with the first book since I already had half of the work or what I thought was half of the work done as the story was already written. Um, the biggest obstacle is I don't know what I'm um, doing. <laughs> the biggest obstacle is that I've never done this before. And so I'm learning right. as I go. So everything from the, the voices deciding 
of the voice of the different characters and then getting either myself or other people to record, you know, that audio, um, you know, and then also how do you represent characters who, you know, there's separate, there's different characters in the, in discontents that have an accent. Um, So there's somebody from the Midwest, there's somebody from um, Appalachia, do I put that accent in there? Do I not? You know, right. how do I respect that? And I ultimately decided to do the accent for the simple purpose of people being able to discern who's speaking. Right. If it, yeah. So if it's in this sort of flat tone, each person's talking and they're saying, you know, back and forth in the dialogue, how do you follow and know who's speaking? And because there are references in the book that say, this person spoke in in a, um, a, a foothills twang, and then to have them sort of have a flat affect or, or you know sort of have no accent as people are listening to it, I thought that might create confusion. And so I tried it yeah. sort of both ways and realized that it didn't work for someone to be able to listen, you know, to be able to follow who exactly was speaking. And there was a few scenes in the book where who is speaking the again without trying to give without giving in too much away where what emory thinks is a person may not be that person speaking if that makes sense mm-hmm. so the right. voice that you're that you're if you're reading it on the page it's sort of a little bit of deception is this character a or is this character b and so for that to kind of make sense in the story you needed to sort of hear it in the voice of character A, you know, because that's what Emery thinks is who, who Emery thinks is speaking. Right. So there needed to be some indications there and sort of non, you know, off the page kind of cues that you wouldn't be able to pick up without it. So that was something I wrestled with a lot because I didn't, for one, I wanted to have the accents sound, um, you know, as accurate as possible and to be yeah. respectful, but then also be able to try to show the, the characters and how they and how so you know how they sort of differ and how you're gonna know who's speaking just by hearing mm-hmm. the voice. Um and then the way that they speak and everything. And then I think the the next major challenge is the original plan was I will read this book into um you know record reading the book or having people read the book and then I'll, you know, edit it pretty quickly and I'll publish it and it'll be that easy. And I quickly sort of realized that the editing takes 10 times as long as the recording. And along with that, how do you make it like how, you know, I started paying attention to the shows that I watch and there's music constantly. If you, if you sit back and watch like a movie or, or TV show, really not a lot of time where there isn't some kind of background music yeah and there's so much tone that's set and pace that's set through that that we're not even aware of that influences how we're responding to the actors on the screen and Mm -hmm. what we're seeing and so i started saying well if i want to make this something that people can enjoy you know more than just an audiobook being read how do i bring it to life so and a lot of the summer uh, getting, um, you know, creative commons or public domain 
type of music and sound effects, thunderstorms and so forth, and then working them in as background into the scenes to try to create that atmosphere for the listener. So they can yeah. enjoy a lot, a lot more than just a, a flat reading of a book. Right. It's so interesting too. I mean, when you start, uh, when you start stepping outside of your comfort zone into another realm of art that you're maybe, not, and I say you, but I mean like in general, right. When, when somebody steps into another realm of art that they're not typically comfortable with, there's always that learning curve, like you said, but then there's also like, you start noticing things in other areas that you didn't notice before. Right. Like when I started kind of doing the podcast, um, you know, I, I had been listening to podcasts, right. That's kind of the whole reason that the idea came to me. It was like, Oh, you should start a podcast. But one thing, and I realized something like editing or, you know, sampling or editing out, editing out as much noise as you, you know, background noise as you possibly can, you start picking up on other people's art and how they manage those same obstacles right like you like you kind of said like you started watching like tv shows or movies and you kind of notice like these little like background cues that you know subconsciously affect how you're absorbing the story or you know whatever it is you're listening to or watching um but they add to the emotion that's going with the scene as well um something something as simple as like if you're watching a movie like certain color tones will evoke certain emotions right sounds do the same thing Obviously, with a podcast, you don't have the visual side of it. So how I mean, the, the question then becomes like, how do you adjust, you know, it, this ultimate, like, sad, depressing scene? Aside from the narration, what else do you add to that story to, like, make it feel sadder than you want? Right. Like, how do you kind of tie into the, your listeners emotional strings there? And that's a, I mean, that's such a challenge, but I think the most fascinating thing is like, and for any, the more you force yourself outside of your own box, you start to see other creators and how they force themselves out of their boxes. And I think is if you're able to kind of pick up on that and kind of recognize what you're doing and what others are doing, you kind of like grow in that realm. And that goes for anything. Like I, I am using art as an example, but I mean, you look at like sports, right? Like, you know, professional athletes didn't start out as professionals. They grew up watching professionals and then decided, Hey, I want to try this sport. And then they started watching specific professionals. Right. And they do certain techniques with, you know, their, how they pitch the baseball or swing the hockey stick or whatever it is. Right. And you kind of start picking up these little pieces as you go on. Right. Um, and to tie this kind of full circle, I think that element of criticism and feedback, it, is a two-way street because it's not just relying on feedback and criticism, criticism of others. It's also that element of like self-criticism. You have to be mm -hmm. self-aware to recognize like, okay, I learned how to, you know, I learned how to, I don't know, skateboard a certain way, but I, now that I'm watching the X games, like I notice all the other skateboarders are doing this one thing. How can I try to incorporate that into my own practice? Right. Right. And I think that's, that's just how, that's how we grow as humans. That's how we better ourselves as humans. Um, but I think the sooner you're able or the earlier in life, you're able to kind of learn that lesson and kind of tap into that potential, the more apt you are to continue your growth down whatever path you choose. And I think it's fascinating what you're doing with the podcast. You, you're taking the written word and 
I mean, from what, how I understood what you just explained is like, you're, you're taking like, and you're trying to put it into like spoken narration, but you're also kind of witnessing like, well, instead of saying like, you know, it started raining, you include a sound bite of it starting to rain. And maybe the right. character, one of the characters like mentions it. Right. But you don't need to, you don't need to waste the line of, you know, narration saying it started raining when you could just easily splice in the sound. Um, and that's fascinating. I think that's, that forces somebody that forces any artist to kind of grow and change the way they think about not only their art, but the way that they see the world around them and experience the world around them. And I think that's absolutely fascinating. And that's honestly, James, that's why I wanted to get you on the podcast is because you took that shift and you embraced that challenge. And I, again, I haven't listened to the podcast yet, but I'm, it's definitely on my subscription list. Um, I have a question for you. Do I sure. read the book first or do I listen to the podcast first? What do you recommend? Uh, I think it depends on how you like to absorb stories. I think either way, you'll get the core of the story. Do you prefer to read? You know, do you like the process of immersing yourself in that way? Or, you know, do you, would you enjoy, you know, being able to sort of hear it as you're, uh, I don't know if you're going out or driving or doing yard work or anything. I don't think... I mean, I think the, the, the way in which you experience it will change how you experience it in some way. And I think it's, I think people will enjoy it in either context because they'll be able to have it in the sort of their preferred way. I think the one, the one thing that gives the book, you know, makes it different is at the very back of the book is the a, a copy of the original letter that um, that the character James receives from the character, and so like that's a, like maybe a picture of it. Yeah, a picture of the original letter okay. that starts the whole narrative. Um, whereas the podcast, the only other sort of aspect of it is that it's going to be released every week. Um, and there, I'm guessing there's going to be 15 or so episodes. I've created eight of them. So maybe that's sort of the other part is, you know, whether or not people would want to wait to hear it, you know, week after week or, you know, wait till a bunch of them mm. are out to kind of binge on them. Um, so I think the other part of it is the, is the, like the time, you know, like do people want to sit down and read a whole book. I'm the kind of person that I can do either way. Yeah. Uh, some people, you know what I mean? They, they don't mind the weekly sort of, hey, I'm waiting for my next episode to come out. Um, but <laughs> I think that either way, I hope, I hope is that you will enjoy it and um, people will, will enjoy the experience either way. Awesome. Well, I look forward to that. I'm definitely, you know, again, I'm in the process of moving, so I got shit everywhere right now. But as soon as things oh, wow. settle down, that's the first podcast I'm jumping into for sure. Thank you. Um, absolutely, dude. I enjoy your work. That's what, again, that's why I wanted to have you on. Thank I want to be you. respectful of your time. And sure. um, I usually wrap up these episodes with three rapid fire questions. Okay. Uh, you ready for them? Yes. All right. All right. So the first one, uh, what are you currently reading? Are you enjoying it? Would you recommend it to others? Um, is it one of those books you can't put down? What do you got on your plate right now? Okay. There are three things if, I, if I'm being, you know, I'm, I'm also, I, I know I'm only supposed to pick one. But I am no, reading. No, it's loose. Take your. Okay, I'm reading the Four Agreements. It was recommended to me 
by a friend. Um, so that's kind of a personal growth thing. I think mm-hmm. that Great it's book. a simple, it's- yeah, it's, a, it's like simple. Like it's easy to read. It's straightforward. I read the Eckhart Tolle book. I forget the name. I feel bad. It was long and dense and there was a lot of wisdom in it, but it was one of those things that it was like so much wisdom that you couldn't absorb it almost. Yeah. Whereas one of those books you gotta like put down and come back to it kind of thing. Right. Whereas the the four agreements is so straightforward. And then I'm gonna read the fifth agreement. And I think there's another book after that. So that's been of great help to me to try to keep those little mindful things, don't make assumptions, that kind of thing. Yep, In terms yep. of novels, I am reading The Grapes of Wrath. Um, that's one has been kind of, yeah, slow, sort of like picking up a couple of pages here and there um, when I have time. I didn't get um, into Steinbeck until a few years ago, and that was a mistake. Should have been reading that when I was younger. <laughs> yep. And so I loved, as you might imagine, The Winter of Our Discontents. Um, is it our mm-hmm. discontents or my discontents? I think it's our discontents. Um, uh, and then most, most than more than anything, I love the travels with Charlie in search of America, which is referenced. in if you find Emery Walden, um, yep. but so I'm reading grapes of wrath. And then I just started this morning listening to the audio book of Siddhartha because a college roommate, gave it to me and I read maybe 10, 20 pages and then I never went any further and it's sitting in my library and I figured since I haven't read it, maybe the audiobook will work better um, sort of in the morning. So those are the three things that I'm reading. I would re- I'd recommend all of them and for different reasons. That's good. I, it's definitely um, a pretty powerful lineup you got there um, as far as um, not just, you know, the the self-awareness and mindfulness side, full, uh, fictional side, too. Because all, all of those books are, like, thinkers. Like, it's not, you know, you can't, it's not a, I wouldn't call them beach reads. You know what I mean? Right, right. Yeah, and the thing about the, like, the Steinbeck, I realized that today, and that's something, I don't mean to go on and on, but the, something going to the conversation we had is, I was talking about pace. It's like, yeah, today you can't write at the pace, the the sort of slower pace, uh, because for today's reader. So I try to keep that in mind as I'm reading that book. But also, like, all the lessons that I can pick up of the detail and, like, the character and on and on. So there's always sort of, like, lessons to learn from what's in it, but then, like, what's not in it or what maybe work today and like how do you apply that well yeah i mean it goes back to like what we were saying earlier in the episode as far as um like knowing a little bit about the author as well as the work that they're producing right like the time period of something being written is going to affect how it's written and what it's written about right like you said like the readers today don't read the same way they did in the 1800s like it's just it's two different styles of writing um, right. And I think knowing knowing that before you pick up a book is going to uh, positively affect how you read that book. So yeah, movies absolutely. too. And I feel like not not just books. Like I, there are definitely movies. Like my wife and I just watched. Um, um, shit, what was the name of it? Uh, 
uh, Airplane on Netflix, and we're like, going back and like rewatching this movie, a classic movie, right? But like we're watching, oh, this, yeah. like man, this is like this movie would never work nowadays. It's just different style of moviegoer audience. You know what I mean? Right. And it's like right. you, you kind of have to like you think about like the time period that the thing was made in, and that makes you appreciate it more for what it actually is. So, right. 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 I don't know. That's that. Anyway, question two. Uh, what's your favorite meal to prepare and cook? Could be for yourself, could be friends and family, could just be whatever. What do you got? Anything particular stand out? Buffalo chicken wraps. Mm, yeah. So I made them last night and my wife said, this is sort of one of, this is my favorite food that you make. Cause she had, she had had a bad day and she was like, this is, like, I always feel good after I've had this. Like, this is something yeah. that I have made for her since we're together. So I think it kind of gets tied into sort of like the history of our relationship. And so I think making that for her, I didn't realize how much she enjoyed it until she told me that uh, <laughs> yesterday. I, I knew she was a favorite, but it was like that really boosted my, my evening. <laughs> So do you have a, I, and don't, don't feel like you have to divulge any secret recipes here, but do you have like a certain way that you prepare it? I, the, like, I cut the chicken, you know, into kind of chunks and then marinate in combination of hot sauce, with a little bit of barbecue sauce for however long. And then I'll just put some, uh, what's that called? Like breading, you know, uh, like panko oh, yeah, yeah. or whatever down and then I'll put a little yep. bit of cayenne in it and then I'll just bread the chicken and then just cook it in the pan with olive oil and then I make rice and bell pepper and onion kind of cut that up and I cook the bell pepper and onion in a in a pot on the stove with a little bit of uh, Louisiana seasoning you know I'm talking Creole mm. seasoning yeah, you know, like Tony's or I forget the other brand it might just be called Louisiana or something. Um, and a then little bit of, yeah, a little bit of hot sauce and then get that, you know, nice and crisp and, and, and cook through. And, and that's that. Just eat it on a tortilla. Sounds delicious. It's hard to go wrong with a buffalo chicken. That's one of our favorite meals, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. Uh, question three. And again, this it sounds profound, but don't feel like you have to go profound with it. Uh, what's one life lesson you'd like to pass on to our listeners today? Oh, so I think a, a big thing that we talked about today kind of has to do with personal growth and kind of going out there and trying to create something and trying to take that risk. I don't think we use the word risk, but I think that's under underneath it. And I yeah, think that you know, you mentioned the podcast. It's something I would not have done even two years ago, maybe even a year ago. Um, I mentioned that there's a lot of projects that I have started that are files on hard drives somewhere in my house. <laughs> I know that well. Yep. <laughs> that, and they, they're not necessarily stories. They're all kinds of things. And so I think that how to try to condense this down, it's like, you're, and I think maybe this is, and I know you said you started the, you had told me in the past, you started the podcast sort of with COVID and everything going on. I think a lot of people are looking around and saying, 
the world that I thought I was guaranteed is not, you know, the, the quote unquote mm-hmm. normal life, you know, normalcy is not guaranteed. And I think like looking at that and looking at what you want to create and what you want to do with your life and sort of saying either thing that's holding me back or is somebody else holding me back. And I think I learned that a lot of it is in my mind, I think other people or other institutions or things or whether it's a, a job or whatever, you know, some sort of other right. out there um, it has become sort of an excuse for me. I can't do it because of this other thing. And really it's, I can't do it because I'm letting, you know, I'm allowing this other thing to be an excuse for me. And mm. so I think even though that was a long way to try to if I could boil it down, it's sort of like sit back and say, what is the agency that I have and what are my fears and what's the worst that could happen? Obviously, the worst that could happen is my pod, nobody l- listens to it or somebody tells right. me it's the worst thing that they've ever experienced uh, in their life. Is it better to have done that and tried and to have gone through the journey and hopefully you know, gained some perspective or some experience out of that that's made me enjoy my life better or to be controlled by this possibility of some outside entity that might, you know, whether criticize or, or whatever it might be. I don't know how well I can condense that down into one sentence, but I think that's the, the kind of the larger theme is you have a lot less to lose than you might think in some case, you know, to yeah. go out there and try to create. And if it brings joy into your own life, one other person's life, then um, that should be enough. Yeah. I could not agree more with that. Um, there's that sense of like adaptability, but also, you know, what can you take away from adapting? Right. Like if it's not meant to be, it wouldn't pop in your brain in the first And like you said, like the drive should be ultimately growth, right? Like what, what can you take away from the thing that you did? even if it failed, like I, I, when I'm in, when I'm teaching, I always tell my students, like the only true failure is giving up, right? Like if you fail something, that's the universe trying to like teach you what you did wrong. And you have to kind of like look at it and see how you can correct it. If you choose to continue down that path, right? If you don't, and you take that failure as a loss and you chalk it up and you want to try something else, that's fine. That's a choice you're allowed to make. Right. But there's always some sort of, some sort of silver lining in there that could be as simple as giving joy to yourself, right? Like people always think like, Oh, I'm, you know, I'm wasting time watching Netflix. Like, well, if you're getting joy out of it, you're not really wasting time. There's a difference there between saying that. And, you know, I binge, you know, for a whole year straight Netflix, like there's moderation of course is a piece of that, but like how you spend your time, if you're mindful of it, there's always some sort of silver lining there. There's always some sort of thing that could help you become a better, more positive, more grateful person, but you have to learn how to look for it first. And I think that's pretty much exactly what you're saying is being able to kind of take a step back and look for those things. Yeah. And being absolutely. And then I think with that being willing to, open you know let doors open or or open the door so you and i wouldn't be speaking if i hadn't had that one seat in my mind if you think about it i told Mm -hmm. you about early on of the person sitting on the kitchen counter and at this like crossroads in their life and so if that 
one story idea that was or seen, not even a story, hadn't nagged me for however many weeks or months it was. And then kind of I hadn't taken action on that, then a whole series mm-hmm. of things wouldn't have happened that had led to, you know, just this one conversation. And while that might not change the world or or however, it creates op- experiences for people. And I think that you know, there's a lot of value just to have in meeting people and to have experiences and sort of put that stuff out there. And so that's, you know, hopefully the podcast will create somebody to have to enjoy some entertainment, to enjoy an experience for a little while. And I think that's something that's bringing, you know, building into people's lives. It's bringing. And I think people sometimes underestimate what what they individually can do. Yeah. The seeds, the seeds are powerful and subtle. Um, they, they come from everywhere and anywhere. And like, again, you got to be able to recognize those. I'm, I'm one of those people that like, I strongly believe uh, something like you use the word nagging, right. With that image coming back in your mind, um, mm-hmm. those people, like if I, I believe the universe gives you signs and if it keeps coming back, if it keeps coming back to the point where it's driving you mad, like it's, it's saying like, you ha- you have to act on this. You have to like do something with this. Like I'm trying, the universe can't speak our language, but it can point us in the right directions. And mm-hmm. I feel like that's exactly what you described is like it, you know, it was giving you a sign, like write this book, you wrote the book and like, here we are. Right. We kind of connected, became acquaintances, friends, I would say. And we kind of linked up and now we're doing a podcast. Right. I mean, you don't know, what doors are going to open unless you open that first door. Absolutely. So, all right, James. Well, um, it has been awesome having you on the show. Um, where can listeners find you online? What's the best way to contact you? Absolutely. And- it, at James Wallace Birch, B-I-R-C-H, uh, on Instagram, Goodreads, just search my name. Uh, Amazon, obviously my books are on Amazon. Um, um, obviously the podcast, which, as I mentioned, Spotify, you know, anchor pretty much anywhere you can get a podcast, which would be discontents, the disappearance of a young radical audio book. And I think those are the primary ways to kind of, to kind of get in contact with me. Cool. All right. Well, I hope, uh, listeners reach out. I know I had a great time picking your brain, so I feel like there will definitely be some people out there that want to do the same. <laughs> yeah absolutely um, I'm, I'm happy to connect with anybody and always love to chat with people and share ideas for sure all right man well thanks for coming on uh it's been great we'll have to connect soon again absolutely it's been an honor and i'm a big fan of the show so thank you, thank you very much thanks have a good one man you too Well, that's it, friends. Thanks for tuning in. I hope to swing through again. If you'd like to reach out, uh, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us online at medium.com slash betterism. Be better at whatever it is you're building. And remember, friends, stay learning. <laughs>